we have the baby in the manger. An animal feeding trough. A child so innocent and helpless. And we are in what is called the Advent season, leading up to the celebration of his birth. But when you think about this, it seems like all of this celebrating is past tense. Looking back thousands of years to something that took place that still impacts us now. But as you study the Advent season, you come to realize that not only does it talk about his first coming there in Bethlehem, but it also includes his second coming yet to take place. We seem to lose that this time of the year. Jesus is coming again. Amen? He's coming again. And I think the focus is on the little child in the feeding trough there in a manger, there with the animals, because I'm allowed to live my own life. I don't have to be accountable to the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he's so innocent and so helpless there with the animals. But if this is truly Advent, Jesus is coming again. And he will not come as an innocent little child. He will come in all of his glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we will give an answer for the lives we have lived. And none of us are looking forward to that. We've all made missteps and mistakes. We've all been a part of messy lives. Don't ask me to answer for how I've used this life as an adult. And so I think so often we are focused on the first advent because there's so many pluses. And so I thought to kick off this advent season, we would talk about the second advent of Christ and put it all in perspective for us. Someone said to me in the last few months, I don't think I've ever heard Grandview's position on end times from this pulpit. And I went, ooh, if that's true, I need to correct that. And so this morning, you're going to review what our position is on Christ's second coming. And for many of you, this is just a review of theology for you. For some of you, this will be new information. You've never seen it laid out clearly. And so that's what I hope to do this morning. Let me give you some facts about Jesus Christ's second coming. And these facts are undisputed by all who love his appearing, no matter what your theological stripe, these things are all true. And so I have uh, six, seven facts. So to fill in the blanks there in your outline, the first one, Jesus will return. Jesus will return personally and visibly. In Acts 1.11, it says, And 
the two men, the two angels that were there, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The first advent, our Savior took on flesh. The God took on flesh and became the God-man. What I have never recovered from the truth is Jesus took on flesh for eternity to follow. He didn't just put on a suit of clothes for 33 years, go through this life and say at the end, now that I'm resurrected, let me just discard this flesh and let me go back to the Father as pure spirit. No. He took on flesh so that we have now an advocate in heaven. Someone who understands the messiness of each of our lives. Who understands our needs and our struggles. Because he now has flesh with him. As integral part of who he is. Second fact is found in John 14, John 14, verses 1 to 3, page 1146. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If this were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Second truth, Jesus will return for us. The church. Ephesians calls us the bride of Christ. He's coming back to take each one of us who have claimed faith in Jesus Christ to be with him for eternity. Turn back to Luke chapter 9, verse 26. So I want you to see where these things are found. Luke 9, 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus, see, will come in glory. He's not going to show up as a little babe in a manger, even as a grown man incognito. When he comes, we'll all know it. He will come in glory. He will knock our socks off when we see his brilliance. For D, Mark 13 Verse 35 to 37, Mark 13, 35 to 37. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus is coming will be unexpected. It'll be unexpected. 
anytime you hear someone on television or on the radio or in print says, I know when Jesus is coming back, write that person off immediately. I don't care what system he has used or the way he has counted up letters and numbers and said, this is going to be it, folks. Every person that has predicted a date has been wrong. And I know what some well, but there might be the next prediction that's correct. This passage says, no, it'll never happen. It's unexpected. Go back to Mark 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, now here is a shocker, nor the Son, but only the Father. E, the timing of his coming, no one knows. Things are getting bad. Catastrophes are happening. We often say, Lord, come quickly, but we don't know. And finally, in the very last book, Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the last book, Revelation 22.20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. To fill in your blank, his coming is imminent. Imminent. That's a fancy word to say that Jesus Christ could come for his bride at any moment. And I don't care what your position on end times is, these seven facts are all held in common by all theologians and scholars who look forward to his coming. And as we now transition into the specifics of end times, I'll tell you right now, there are scholars, biblical scholars, on every position I'm going to talk about this morning. And what I'm saying, listen very carefully, if someone holds a different position than we do, do we need to break fellowship with them? If they do not believe in the virgin birth of Christ, do we break fellowship with them? Yes. If they don't believe in the inerrant scriptures, we don't fellowship with them. Why? Because we just don't see eye to eye on so much. But we can have different understandings of how end times are put together. And you know why that's true? Because it's not super clear. I think God has purposefully veiled some of this, even though he talks about it. So that no one can stand here and say, I know the truth and I'm willing to stake my life on it. No, not on end times. Now, I have a position and this church has a position on what we believe. Based upon every position has problems. And in my senior theology course with Dr. Charles Ryrie, he said... Find a position you can hold with the least amount of problems. Now, here is a scholar, and he was saying they all have 
problems. So, I may raise as many questions as answer this morning. But that means you can chase it down for yourself. Here are some questions that need to be decided to help you understand how end times fits together. We have heard the word, the millennium. It's a fancy word for a thousand year frame of reference. So here's the question that has to be decided. Is the millennium literal or metaphorical? Now let me explain. Is there literally 1,000 years or is it really speaking about the spiritual reign of Christ in our hearts as his followers? Now, there are major portions of Christianity who believe the millennium is not literal. I don't hold that. The millennium is found in Revelation chapter 20. But it's only found, now think about this, only found in a book, the book of Revelation, that is very symbolic at times. And so some scholars say this is also a symbol. I just believe that when Jesus says a thousand years, he means... A thousand years. So that's the first question you have to decide. Secondly, what is the relationship of Christ's return to the millennium? So does Christ return before the millennium? Does Christ return after the millennium? Now, if he comes before the millennium, and you believe that, you're called pre-millennial. Does that make sense? It's pretty simple. If you believe he comes after the millennium, you're called post-millennial. That's your theology. My question is, if Christ returns after the millennium, after the thousand years then who will sit on David's throne to rule during that thousand years? I don't know anyone that's of the line of David. So therefore, as I've looked at end times, and this church has understood, our church is pre-millennial. Are we following each other so far? Pre-millennial. We believe there's a thousand-year reign of Christ, that Christ will actually sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, literally. And he will rule the world pre-millennial. Third question. Where does the time of the tribulation and the great tribulation fit in with Christ's return? I have one more question, but in point four, you can see that I've laid out a timeline for you of what I believe and what this church holds. There is a three and a half year portion of something called the tribulation. Something happens, and it's called the abomination of desolation. 
and then another three and a half years continue on, and that's called the Great Tribulation. And then the millennium takes place. That's, that's the general overview. So where does the time of tribulation fit in with Christ's return? We will answer that in just a minute. Because there's other options on what to pick. And finally, the fourth question that needs to be answered, at least in your own thinking, what is all this talk about the rapture? Now, the word rapture is a non-biblical word. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. And if this is true, where does it fit in with the timeline? Now, I'll tell you that the word rapture comes, if you want to turn so you can see it for yourself, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1257, there in the Pew Bible. Let me start reading at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. That is the word rapture. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Where does this catching up in the air fit within the timeline of the end? And let me also tell you that I believe, and others hold this as well, that coming in the air is not the same as coming to the earth. The coming in the air I just read for you, if you want to jot down in your notes, Zechariah 14.4 It talks about him actually stepping on the earth. So, here's a review of end times. Tribulation, abomination of desolation at that first mark there. Another three and a half years where the tribulation becomes even greater. Followed by the thousand year reign of Christ. Now, Let me fill in your blanks. Let's go all the way down to E. Do you see E on the diagram there? The big E, that is Christ's second coming. We believe that Christ will come back, will step down on the earth, and he will reign for a thousand years physically in Jerusalem. And as we say that, we then are premillennial. He comes before the thousand years that he reigns. Now, if I hold position D, you see D right next to E, 
That is called a position called post-trib. Post-trib. If you want to fill in D. Post-trib rapture of the church. That means that Christ will come for his bride and the tribulation will have taken place. We will have gone through the tribulation and the great tribulation and at the end of that, Christ is going to come in the air, snatch us up, and then he's going to come back and put his feet on the ground and reign. Now, I have a problem with that. Many hold that. If you hold that position, then between D and E, there must be some interval of time because after we are taken in the air back to heaven, two things take place. One, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's found in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. Also during that time, there is a process where the believers, that's us, go through judgment for the sake of rewards. We've talked about that. We've done a sermon on that. And so somehow you have to jam. And and if I think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, I don't think it'll be a one-day event. I think there's going to be a lot of celebrating as we understand that we are the bride of Christ. So there's going to have to be an interval between D and E. There are some who believe, see, that we are taken up in the middle of the great tribulation. And that is called the pre-wrath rapture of the church. That we are taken out before it really, really gets bad. I don't hold that. Let's go up to B. B is halfway through the tribulation. And that is called mid-trib rapture of the church. I know this is technical, but you want to know what we hold. Now, there's one other position. We'll get to A in just a moment. But there's one other position I couldn't quite put on your chart. So if you would kind of be above A, B, C, D, would you put it F, 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 just a bunch of Fs for position F? And that is called, and again, scholars hold this as well too, the partial rapture of the church. And that believes that there are going to be multiple departures based upon how ready you are to go. Occasionally, I'll walk past Julie Lyle's office and I'll look in and say, oh, partial rapture just took place. Because she's far more ready than I am. Or sometimes I'll walk into our house and look for my wife and say, oh, partial rapture just took place. Now, I don't hold the position. And you understand, if you held that position, then it's all about your faithfulness. It's all about how well you live out your Christian life. And we're going to get rewarded 
But if I wait for me to get good enough to to launch with Jesus, I'm going to be here through the whole thing. You get it. The position I've left for last is the position that I and this church hold, which is position A on your chart, and it's called pre-trib or pre-tribulation. The pre-trib rapture of the church. That means things are going to happen. I don't know when he's coming back. And all of a sudden, when I least expect it, oh, I'm flying. And he takes me into the air with him. But already with him are the dead. They've rise first. And now it's my turn and your turn. Now, This is bad theology, but it's an interesting thought. I used to hear in seminary, you're going to go however you believe. So I'm definitely going to be an A. I'm going to be a pre-trib. I don't want to go through the tribulation. Amen? Do you want to go through great times of God's wrath being poured out on a world that has been turning its back and doing its own thing? No, I don't want to be here for that. Let me give you some reasons why we hold to pre-trib. Number one, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, I'll read it for you. There's this promise. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What he says to the church at Philadelphia is they are not going to go through the tribulation. And as you're reading the book of Revelation, it's interesting. You talk about the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, and all of a sudden you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and guess what? The church is never mentioned again in the book of Revelation until chapter 20. Where's the church? It's talking about all the things that are going on in the tribulation. Where's the church? My belief is the church is with Jesus. It's off the earth. So we hold... As a church, think about this, we are pre-mill, pre-trib. That's shorthand. Christ will come before the millennium, and Christ will take up his bride before the tribulation. That's what we believe. Now, others believe differently. I also love them too. And you can hold a different position than that. Just have biblical reasons for holding it. Okay? Now, what does this mean for us? The purpose and function of prophecy is not to enable us to construct a neat prophetic table. I brought in from my home office this chart that I've had now for 40 plus years 
And if you want to come up after the service, because I, I couldn't really blow it up because it's so long, but this is one man's rendering of what a pre-mill, pre-trib timeline looks like. And that just kind of reminds me of, I can't wait to launch. Because it's the next thing on the timetable. But the purpose of studying this is not just to do nice charts. It's not just to predict future events. Would you please clearly hear this morning that as we study end times, it is to assure us that God will allow nothing to stand in the way of final fulfillment of his purpose. God is still on the throne. Amen? As he works out his plan, it's going to come, come about. It's going to take place. No matter how bad things seem to get, no matter how much our lives seem out of control or this world, He is still on the throne and He is in control totally. That should give us assurance. And we don't have to keep wringing our hands as we things get worse and worse at times. What does this also mean for us? The importance of Christ's second coming is the hope of the church. I know, and I pray that you know, that Jesus is coming back for you. He's not going to leave you here as orphans. He's, I think he's not going to take you through times of wrath and destruction and judgment. He's going to remove you before that all takes place. As I understand the second coming of Christ, it is an incentive to live biblically. Jot down in your notes, 1 John 3, verse 3. If I understand end times and all that's going to take place, it should cause me to self-purify. Yes, God's going to do a work in me, but I must at times say to myself, no, I'm not going to do that. That is sin. That's self-purification. Now, I count on the Spirit of God to give me the strength to carry it out. But i got to take a stand. It also challenges me to be watchful and to persevere and to go through the hard times right now, knowing that one day He's coming back for us. The third incentive is it is a stimulus for service. He should find us doing what He asks so that when He comes, He'll find me doing the things that move the kingdom forward. And when he finds that, I now understand, he's going to say, I pray, well done, good and faithful servant to many of you. Because you're doing the right things. You're doing what he's asked you to do. So what should be our response 
How do we need to apply this? Three things. Number one, watchfulness. Watchfulness. Jot down in your notes, Mark 13, 35 to 37. Secondly, eager anticipation. 2 Peter 3, 12. I think we have gotten so numb to the idea of Christ coming back. And let's just, oh, let's just kind We should be like our grandchildren whose noses are pressed up against the glass. Are they here yet? Where are they? Mama, call them. Find out how long before they're going to get here. They were eagerly anticipating our drive from Davenport. But for most of us, our noses aren't pressed against the glass biblically. We're yawning. No big deal. Jesus wants us to eagerly await for him. When I travel in the past, I talked to Barb almost every night on the phone. But it wasn't the same when I walked through the front door. Or when she was apart from me, we eagerly anticipated the other's return. Third response, upright and holy living. You want to jot down a reference for you to chase down 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 12. If our Lord and Savior will one day come and take me home and you, I want to be ready. I want to be eagerly anticipating him, but I also want to be found doing his will for my life. I want to be known as someone saying yes to the Spirit of God. I want a life that reflects the reality that I know is true. He's coming back. As we raised kids and brought in babysitters, Our children knew sometime that evening mom and dad were coming back. And if they lost sight of that, their behavior reflected it. And then all of a sudden, the sitter would have to say, should I call your parents? Oh, that's right, they're coming back. Jesus is coming back. Back for us. And as we are celebrating this Christmas season, appreciate the tinsel and the lights and the gifts and the celebration. But that's only half the story. Also remember, all that we're doing is preparing us for when He comes back for us. It puts Christmas, I think, in a whole different frame of reference for us. It's reminding us it's great, but it's reminding us He's coming again for us. As we celebrate communion this morning, 
and I will read the words to us for us out of 1 Corinthians. The very end of that saying, it says this, and remember the Lord's death, three more words, until he comes. Eager anticipation. As we partake of the elements this morning, it reminds us he came, he gave his life as a sacrifice for us, but he's coming back for us. We don't just serve a dead Savior, we serve a risen Savior who is going to return. It should affect our lives. It should change us. Merry Christmas. May this season put both of those truths together for you. Let's pray.